Hello, everyone, and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines related to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. So while we've all been somewhat distracted by the COVID pandemic, there's been another disease making its way around the world that's been somewhat overshadowed, and that's African swine fever. African swine fever is a highly contagious and deadly viral disease affecting both domesticated and feral swine of all ages. It's not a threat to human health and it can't be transmitted from pigs to humans. And it's not a food safety issue. However, it is having a huge impact on the global pork industry and has the potential to seriously disrupt our food supply. We're very fortunate to have an esteemed expert in the area of international livestock to help us get a much better sense of the risks associated with African swine fever and what we as individuals might be able to do to help. Dr. Daryl Peel is the current Charles Breedlove Professor of Agribusiness based at Oklahoma State University. He obtained both his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees from Montana State University and his PhD from the University of Illinois. Dr. Peel, welcome to Side Dish. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're really looking forward to the conversation. So <laughs> can I ask you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in the international livestock trade? You know, I, uh, been in, well, I've been involved in the livestock industry, I guess, my whole life, but certainly from, uh, from the time I got into graduate school, I intended to work on livestock economics. And, um, and so I've been here at Oklahoma State University now for 32 years in my current position as livestock marketing specialist. And, uh, and so I work to some extent with all of the major livestock species. I work a lot with the beef and cattle industry because I'm in Oklahoma, but I do work with all of the, uh, all of the species. And I've gotten a lot more involved in the international trade arena in the last oh, 15 or 20 years, probably. Mm. So let's get into it. What exactly is African swine fever and what are its origins and how does it spread? Well, you know, it's it's named for Africa because it's endemic there. And so that's kind of where it originated. It's a hemorrhagic uh, viral disease. And the other one that you might have heard of, but is different, is classical swine fever. So uh, sometimes these two get a little bit confused and they are different. We don't have either one of these in the U.S. But one of the differences is that classical swine fever does have vaccine and treatment potential, whereas African swine fever uh, has no real treatment potential, and, and there's no vaccine for it. So uh, it's a much more serious threat. African swine fever now is in, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's in Europe, in a number of countries. It's been across much of Asia in the last few years. And of course, more recently, and, and uh, you know, more concerning to the U.S. perspective, is the fact that in late July, it was diagnosed in the Dominican Republic. Mm. And so... Uh, that has really heightened the uh, the concern and the awareness of the potential threat that this disease poses for the uh, for the U.S. industry. Wow! So being in the Dominican Republic is not that far away from the shores of the U.S. and particular Puerto Rico. So, right. so tell me what the U.S. is actually doing to uh, put some uh, sanitary barriers in place. You know, the, there's been. Uh, heightened awareness and, and measures uh, for the last several years, really since the major eruption in China in, in the second half of 2018 and through 2019 and continuing to today. But, it, but uh, those, those efforts have been uh, 
have been heightened even more with this latest discovery so much closer to our shore. So, you know, the uh, the border control, you know, border protection has uh, uh, heightened the efforts to to detect, in particular, luggage and travelers, because pork products are a commonly brought item in, in people's luggage coming home. Obviously, there's the, you know, sort of industry level efforts in terms of protecting, you know, imp- you know relative to imported products and things like that. And then the industry itself uh, has, has really uh, put a lot of effort into heightening individual producers' awareness and the need for, you know, biosecurity measures on farms and to also to have plans in place in terms of, you know, how they would need to, to react if, in fact, we were to have an issue. Right, but not to pick directly on Puerto Rico, but they, they essentially sit right between us and the Dominican Republic. Is there something special going on in that area that, that uh, is being done? Well, you know, in general, uh, under normal international trade rules, as the as Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, if mm. uh, if the disease appeared there, then it would be considered to be in the U.S. Broadly speaking, and countries could take what whatever trade measures you know, likely to suspend things. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has requested that Puerto Rico be treated as what's called a pr- protection zone, essentially a buffer zone, uh, since it's since it is an island and and it can be. Uh, you know, somewhat isolated from the mainland, uh, so they've requested that uh, that Puerto Rico be recognized as a product uh, as a protection zone, which meant that if it did in fact get into Puerto Rico, then it wouldn't automatically mean that the entire U.S. industry would be considered right. uh, to to have the disease, and so that gives us you know an extra step, if you will, an extra level to try to uh, avoid the uh, you know the potential trade sanctions that that might happen as a result of that. Right. So you, you said at the very start that this is a hemorrhagic uh, viral disease, and, and, and I was kind of interested in whether you could tell us more about how the virus impacts the animal. What does the hemorrhagic part of that actually mean in terms of the, the animal? And, and once an animal is infected, what's the typical course of events for that animal and, and for that matter for the rest of the animals that happen to be housed with it? Yeah, and of course, you know, I'm I'm an ag economist. That's not really my specialty in one sense, but obviously, we're all aware of that. And I, uh, and so, um, you know, this disease is extremely contagious. For one thing, any bodily fluids, secretions, excretions, whatever, the virus is present, and it's and it's highly contagious. And for the individual animals, uh, oftentimes the mortality rate approaches 100%. Oh, wow. So again, yeah, there's no treatment for this. There's no vaccine for it. So basically, if the animals get it, they will die from it. And and because it is so contagious, if it gets in a herd, it typically spreads uh, extremely rapidly. And so the only, um, you know, sort of mitigation opportunity that's there once, you know, once it's detected is to do a, uh, you know, a, a rapid depopulation of, uh, you know, some quarantine zone, if you will, to try to, uh, to try to stop it. Mm. Any movement of the animals or, or products, you know, again, fluids, tissues, uh, whatever, and then anything that touches those. So it can be transmitted as a fomite, which means basically you get 
you get it on your shoes when you walk through it, or it gets on clothing or tires or trucks or whatever, and it can be then transmitted from one location to another through through that format. It also can be tra- uh, transmitted by a certain tick that that may be present on the animals, Ooh. and and the tick can actually uh, act as a host for the the virus as well. So, so you said something in there that just lightly rolled off the tongue, but I'm sure it has much greater implications, you know, the depopulation process. How challenging is it, is it to cull a large flock of pigs? What, what are the issues there? Well, obviously it is a, you know, it's, it's a huge task. I mean, uh, uh, and it's something that, you know, within the U.S., uh, there's a lot of effort uh, devoted towards planning for how you would do that, how you would establish a quarantine zone, a safety zone around that, and then begin that process of depopulation. Obviously, disposal of those carcasses then becomes critical uh, because, again, all of those tissues um, from infected pigs are still harboring the virus. In fact, the virus is actually fairly durable in a lot of uh, environments, if you will. So it'll last for a while. And that's another reason why it's so, it's so uh, you know, easily transmitted and transported uh, in products, you know, either uh, either in, in this situation where you've got infected animals or, or whatever, uh, but also in pork products and in meat products uh, that, you know, may contain the virus. And again, it has the ability to survive a number of days, depending on temperature and moisture conditions. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a fairly durable virus. So I said at the start that it that it didn't impact humans, but is there any hard evidence that the virus cannot impact directly humans? There is no indication at all that this is a you know zoonotic disease that that it's something that that people can catch from from the pigs and suffer any sort of health consequences at all. Again, they can they can help transport it right. um, in terms of you know interacting with with uh, infected materials or whatever, but, uh, but no, no human health whatsoever. Right. So I guess that takes us into that space of, well, how has the presence of African swine fever really impacted the pork industry on a global basis? And, and you know, what, what impact has it had on supply and price? Well, I tell you, you know, we have, unfortunately, a great uh, case study of that going back to, you know, again, I I indicated earlier that uh, African swine fever was diagnosed in China in uh, in the second half of 2018. And by the time we moved into 2019, and, and again, you have to recognize that going into that time period, China had about half of the world's population of hogs. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's by far their preferred meat. And, and, of course, it's a large population. So they consumed, uh, produced and consumed a lot of pork. And within uh, a year's time or 15 months or so, uh, China lost. Uh, estimates vary because data is a little bit sketchy. But most estimates are that China lost close to half of their hog herd in about 12 or 15 months time. So we're talking about 25% of all the pigs in the world essentially died as a result of this disease by the end of 2019. Wow. And did that have a material impact on the global price of of pig meat? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, it had tremendous impacts and it it still is to some extent. Um, Of course, the disease is still out there and still operating. Um, uh, but you know, in, in, as a result of that in, in China, again, that's a loss of a huge uh, amount of their protein supplies. 
And so that provoked, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of demand in China to import uh, pork as well as other proteins. And so in, in, in 2019 and 2020, we saw tremendous increases in Chinese imports of really all proteins, right. but pork especially. And so it had, uh, it had price impacts uh, around the world. They were essentially uh, sourcing protein from everywhere they could around the world. And of course, the U.S. exported a tremendous amount of pork in 2020 to uh, China in, in late 2019 and through 2020. It's slowed down just a little bit now, but China's still struggling. Uh, you know, we believe they have recovered a significant part of their initial losses but there's still uh, deficit in protein, and, and there's still a tremendous demand for uh, for pork in in China. So, so we sometimes here in the U.S. get a little insulated and don't necessarily observe the uh, the wider global impacts on our economy of certain things that are happening. Can you be a little more explicit for us and and tell us exactly how what happened in China impacted? the uh, the pork trade and the pork prices within within the U.S. specifically? You know, uh, the, again, we saw a, a large increase in pork exports from 2018 to 20, you know, uh, into 2019. I'm, I'm trying to locate some numbers here uh, a little bit. 2018 to 2019 to 2020. And actually, you know, estimates are for 2021 that we will continue to see that increase. And so, even though the U.S. Uh, is is still producing uh, very close to a record level of pork production, you know we've enjoyed very strong prices uh, as a result of that. Right. And so we, we continue to see that and and rely on that uh, international market as a significant component of our domestic industry. Yes, that's interesting. Is there any evidence to suggest? that other feed animals could be directly impacted by uh, African swine fever? No, this is a swine-specific disease. So there's no indication that other farm animals uh, are impacted by it. Uh, But you mentioned in the intro that, uh, you know, it does affect uh, wild uh, pig populations. And so, you know, in in Europe, there's wild boars and and that, and it it is in those animals. And that's part of the challenge they're facing in in Europe to try to control the disease. One of the things that has to be absolutely frightening in the U.S. is the prospect of this disease coming uh, into the U.S. and then getting into the feral swine uh, population that exists now in in so much of the U.S., and that would be uh, just a tremendously challenging uh, prospect for us to try to deal with. It, challenging in what way? Well, just the ability to control it. Um, now, you know, I, I, I indicated earlier it has high mortality, so it's going to kill a lot of those pigs. Mm. But in the process, it's going to spread in, in a great many locations, and it's going to be a, um, you know, a, real, a real challenge then to keep it out of the, uh, the commercial herds um, and... and uh, and it could move very rapidly through those feral populations. And so, you know, we talked about the, the, the prospect of trying to quarantine and depopulate an area that, that has an infection. But if it's in the feral herd, that's going to be nearly impossible to implement. And so, uh, you know, it would be extremely difficult to, to control if it were to get into that. Right. So it, at that point, it, it basically becomes endemic. It very well could. Um, you know, it, it, it might be, uh, you know, extremely difficult to, uh, 
to eradicate it uh, at that point. And obviously the cost and the resources that we're talking about here would be uh, just tremendous uh, in terms of the, you know, and, and that would be a decision that would have to be made at that point as to whether or not we are going, in fact, to try to eradicate or whether it will be a uh, learning to live with that kind of a scenario uh, because sometimes that's, uh, you know, perhaps the uh, the best alternative that's, uh, that's out there. So if it did get into the U.S. and we were focused, you know, on eradication and, and therefore, to a large extent, a lot of the uh, pork that's currently flowing into our food supply is uh, not available to us anymore, what's the implication of that on all of the other animal proteins that are that are currently being produced? Well, okay, so, you know, obviously nobody knows exactly what would happen, but but you would assume that if it gets into the, certainly in the continental U.S., um, our export markets would essentially dry up overnight. So in 2021, we are uh, forecast to export about 26% of our total U.S. production of pork. Um, and, if, and if we lost all those export markets, all of that meat stays in the country and we try to consume it domestically, um, you know, that's going to add something like 17 pounds on an annual basis domestically for us to eat the pork that would have been exported. Now we're projecting, you know, in, in the, in, in lieu of that, that we would consume in the U S about 50 pounds on a retail basis. So add another 17 to that. uh, It's a huge impact. We would see, you know, and that would add to total meat production. So in addition to the beef and, and pork, uh, poultry production, uh, you know, it would increase domestic supply something like 7% mm. immediately. Mm. Now, those were annual-based numbers, and we would, in fact, start to see adjustments immediately. So we might not actually have to eat all of those 17 pounds because we would start cutting back on production immediately, and, and that's an annual-type number. But the point is it would be, uh, it would be devastating. There has been some preliminary work done out of Iowa State that that has predicted that if African swine fever hits the U.S., it would cause a 40 to 50 percent immediate decrease in hog prices in the U.S. Wow. That's kind of interesting because I think on the superficial side of this, you'd say when the pork industry gets impacted, then that takes the uh, pork supply out of the equation and therefore the pork prices go up and other prices go up. But it's actually constraining the export situation, which is driving the pork price down due to oversupply. It's a, it's a really interesting conundrum. Well, it is. And, and not only that, if you start trying to cut back on production, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an issue in the pork industry because initially, if you, if you want to cut down on production, then what are you going to do? You're going to cull sows. You're going to not save mm. uh, gilts that would be normally retained for breeding. So actually, in the short run, you add additional supplies on top of the fact that we have all this formerly exported product that's not being exported now. So there would be a brief period there where, where uh, the process of trying to decrease production actually increases production. Right. And uh, now on the hog side, that's not as big a deal because, uh, you know, uh, a sow normally has upwards of 20 pigs a year. So you, you cull one sow and you cut down on 20 pigs of production on an annual basis. Mm. I'm, you know, I, in the beef industry, uh, it's a much more uh, a bigger challenge because they have them one at a time. So if you wanted to cut back 10 percent 
uh, of the calf crop in the in the beef side, you have to get rid of 10 percent of the cows. Right. Um, so it's it's not quite as hard in the pork side because you do have that uh, litter leverage, if you will. But nevertheless, you would you would have, uh, you know, obviously tremendous impacts on the industry. Right. So this has all been happening with the backdrop of, of COVID. So, and clearly with the COVID pandemic, we've changed the way we do a whole bunch of things. We're a lot more careful and we're a lot cleaner in some ways and washing hands more frequently, et cetera, et cetera, and distancing. And has the COVID pandemic had any impact on the spread or indeed our ability to control the virus? You know, as I think through that, um, from the standpoint of the disease itself, I guess I can't really see that it's had a huge amount of impact. In fact, if anything, it's probably decreased the risk somewhat simply because we cut back on travel and movement of, mm-hmm. of people. And again, uh, you know, USDA has estimated that really it's travelers, international travelers would probably be one of the biggest potential threats for bringing uh, African swine fever uh, into the country. So, so you know, it's potentially reduced the, the, the risk a little bit in that sense. Now, the other side of it is, is more related, not so much to the disease itself, but just to the industry impacts of COVID. It, it has had tremendous impacts on, on shipping and international uh, um, movement of products and supply chain disruptions and those kind of things. So uh, there's been a lot of impacts there, but not so much directly related to the disease that I'm aware of. Right. So another parallel um, course of, of activity is the California Proposition 12, which is, of course, designed to increase the size of the area that each feed animal is provided to, to live in. And, and this is looking more and more likely that it's going to get passed. If it was passed, would that Prop 12 requirement have any impact on the control or the impacts of uh, the spread of swine fever? You know, the biggest impact there, as you said, is just increasing uh, in increasing space. So it represents a tremendous cost on the industry to invest in additional facilities, if you will, to allow that space. There's some production impacts when you uh, cease using, uh, you know, breeding gestation crates, uh, that kind of thing. But all of that is still mostly going to happen in uh, in a confined or indoor setting where the biosecurity measures really wouldn't change a great deal right. uh, that I think. Now, if you did see um, any development of sort of outdoor production, you know, which is what we've gotten away from. And there was a time when we produced a lot of hogs outdoors, not so much anymore. Mm. And I don't think it's very likely that, uh, that we would go back to that. If we did, then certainly there would be a much higher risk um, in, in that kind of a setting to, uh, you know, to being able to control African swine fever. But as it is now, I think it, it's a cost issue. It's a production issue, but probably from a biosecurity standpoint and the disease itself, probably not a, a great deal of change. So, so what is being, what specifically is being done right now to control the spread of the African swine fever? Well, again, we've got all these border contractions. You know, the, the focus right now in the U.S. is just trying to keep it from getting in in the first place. I mean, there are mm-hmm. plans in place. If it does, what will we do? How will we react to try to control it? But, but the, uh, the, the effort right now is just uh, to try to avoid uh, uh, allowing the disease to get a beachhead in, in any part of the country. So 
Uh, again, those efforts have been significantly heightened uh, over the past couple of years, and especially this summer, uh, since we've had, uh, you know, again, the, the outbreak uh, you know, right next door to us. So, uh, so that's really the focus uh, now at, at this point in time. In other countries, uh, you know, it just depends on the country and the situation um, and, and uh, in terms of how they're doing it. Um, in Europe, again, they've had a lot of problems, uh, you know, sort of controlling it and keeping it controlled. And I think that's largely because of that wild boar uh, com component there where the disease stays out in the country and then occasionally gets into those commercial production facilities. China, of course, is, is a vast country has a wide range of production. It's, it really went into the African swine fever situation with a very, um, you know, kind of a, a traditional um, small scale uh, production system that was extremely difficult to, to manage or control. Uh, they're converting, uh, and as they rebuild that industry, they're converting to more of a U.S. looking industry in the sense of it being larger scale facilities indoors where biosecurity is is more possible but uh you know it, they're still it's just such a big country and there's such a variation and diversity of uh of production systems used in different parts of the country right and do you know what the u.s authorities and or specialists are doing to support other countries to help prevent or control the uh, the spread of uh, the African swine fever, so it it does not get into the U.S. You know, there's there's certainly contacts on a peer level in, in, in terms of the veterinary services and so on. I, I don't know that I can speak specifically, for example, and and what the U.S. Uh, contact might be, for example, in say China. I do know, and I have read that. Uh, that uh, the U.S. U.S. and Canadian officials have had a number of consultations because obviously we have a very integrated uh, industry between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we import a lot of feeder pigs from Canada into the U.S. to be finished and, and slaughtered in the U.S. And uh, so there have been a number of uh, explicit efforts there to uh, to sort of uh, uh, harmonize the approaches in the two countries and, and make sure that they are working together and, uh, and really treating that uh, that border uh, issue as as a unified approach between the two countries. Right. So I I think there's a lot of people listening today that are wondering what can I do about this. So as we finish up here today, what is it that you would want food scientists to know about the things that they might be able to proactively do to support the process of controlling the spread of the virus? Yeah, you know, I think every individual at some level can have an impact. I mean, if we're talking producers, we've already talked about the industries put a lot of educational effort into try to enhancing uh, producers' uh, biosecurity plans and those sort of things. Uh, and just individuals traveling. Uh, if you do travel internationally, and certainly if you, uh, you know, on food, food people might like to bring home some things from other countries, and I can sure see that and understand that. But, you know, again, think about being very, very careful uh, about uh, those products. Uh, you know, most of them you're not supposed to bring in anyway, but uh, uh, but that's what happens. They do get brought in and so on. And, you know, as a as a food industry person, uh, you may well be sourcing uh, products. And I guess I would just say, you know, you maybe you need to give a little uh, thought and attention to make sure you know what the supply chain is that you're uh, tapping into and just be sure that, uh, you know, that there's no, uh, 
that, that there's no irregularities there that might uh, actually or inadvertently uh, increase the odds of bringing in products that could be a threat to the U.S. industry. Are there any products that uh, that you can point to that are inherently safe and therefore protected from African swine flu? I'm just thinking about um, canned products that might have undergone a you know a, a, a thermal th- sterilization or a, uh, a dry materials. Is there anything inherently stable or safe about certain products versus others? You know, my understanding is, and I'm a little bit out of my field here, but my understanding is that certainly some, uh, you know, cooking processes would generally probably, uh, um, you know, make the product safe. I I would imagine that some cured products uh, reach a point where the the threat is is quite low. But honestly, you know, and that's one of the things, again, there's such a wide range of products, uh, pork products that can be done in that in that range where I think it's it's hard to know maybe whether or not uh, th- those products really are safe. And I'm not uh, actually uh, aware of the details for sure of where that line is or, or indeed if we're really sure in all cases where that line is on some of those products. So, you know, it, you just want to be very, very safe and, and, and extra, extra cautious for sure. Yeah, it goes back to your original advice. You know, just just look at your supply chain extremely carefully and uh, be very, very thoughtful about uh, what it is you are and are not doing. Yeah, I think so. You know, again, this is this is something that um, you know, even if you don't think about it, and and you think, well, I'm not really involved directly in the pork industry or whatever, but but it's pretty easy inadvertently to be part of the issue here. Uh, in terms of uh, just the way this thing can happen, it can get transmitted so many uh, different ways. And, and so, you know, if you visit another country, it's, it might be tempting to go see how they raise their pork. And then you come home with those dirty shoes. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing they check for at the border as much as possible. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's important to be very vigilant about uh, whether or not you uh, have engaged in anything like that where you could inadvertently be bringing it back. So arguably, you wouldn't even want to um, uh, visit a, a a processing facility that is processing pork material either. No, that's right. I think you'd need to be very, very careful uh, about uh, you know any like that. Clothing could be contaminated, and it certainly can be trans you know transmitted on on uh, you know soiled clothing or whatever that comes in contact with any fluids or tissues. Mm, excellent advice and uh, one that I hope we can all take to heart and do something with. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Peel. I, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your insights with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to do it anytime. Thank you also to uh, Kelly Kleinsmith of IFT's Muscle Foods Division for suggesting this great topic. And uh, I certainly have learned a lot and I know that I'm going to be very careful going forward. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in in the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.